Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, we are back here again with a video by John Clayton um, from his series, Does God Exist? Today he is talking about morality. And normally when we talk about morality, we're simply making the distinction between right and wrong. And so he is going to talk to uh, this notion of uh, who who determines uh, what is right and what is wrong, or where from where do we derive our source of information on uh, what is right and what is wrong? Uh, this is the uh, part one of a two-part lesson, um, lesson 21 in our lesson of 36 um, lessons, and it's called Morality's Proof of God. Welcome to program number 21 in the Does God Exist video series. We call this lesson Morality's Proof of God. And it's interesting when you start talking about morality that there's probably been more discussion and more debate than many of the other subjects we've talked about. The Bible makes an incredibly strong statement about its use in the practical affairs of decision making in life. One of the strongest statements is in 2 Timothy 3, beginning with verse 16. And listen to the, to the strength of the claim. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And now look at this phrase. That the man or woman of God may be perfect. Now you look up that word in the original language and it means to be complete. And the importance of that is that the claim is being made that the Bible is all you need for the best of everything in life. The best families, the best marriage, the best job, the best friends, the best sex, the best of everything. And obviously that's a pretty strong statement. One of the things I want to point out to you as we start this discussion is that an atheist will almost immediately say something like, well, here we go, all you religious people want to do is legislate morality. In other words, that all the religious people have an interest in is controlling what other people do, how other people think. And that's not the point. The question is a very practical question, a very base level question. How do we make decisions? How do we judge the way we conduct ourselves morally? There have been books written by philosophers with titles like Can an Atheist Be Moral? There have been debates and discussions about the inconsistencies of religious people. I've had many religious debates, discussions on especially interview radio in which people have made a big case out of and point strongly to the inconsistency of religious people. Someone will say, well, I'm just as moral as that preacher down there, or I'm more moral than that preacher down there, 
or look at the terrible problems that religious people have caused. All the wars, all the religious wars, all of the tragedies, all of the awful things that happen, and we have pointed to statements by atheists about the destructive nature of religion. <laughs> I wouldn't debate that. There have been awful things done in the name of God. What we're talking about here is not what people do. What we're talking about is what the system teaches. I haven't always agreed with everything that the President of the United States has done or said. I've not agreed with the political agenda of many people in Congress. But I have never denied my citizenship as an American because I don't agree with everything that is done by those who are in control. Religion is simply man's attempt to find God. What we're talking about is the question of what does the system teach? What does the Bible teach as opposed to the philosophies of religion? The philosophies of atheism? The wisdom of the secular world? Now, what I'd like to do to try and help us analyze this for quite a period of time here is to look at a little comparison. The chart that you're looking at right now has three columns. The first column is the statements that people make to describe the way they make moral decisions. Let's put one in here. Everybody is doing it. Okay, that's a statement that people make. That's a way, intellectually, we make decisions. And we're all influenced by it. When you're driving down the freeway and everybody's passing you like standing still, you tend to speed up your car. Everybody's doing it. On a much more serious level, decisions about promiscuous sex, the way we conduct business, the way we handle our finances, many times are based upon the standards of the people around us, the society in which we live. There are even some religions that base their religious philosophy on the total spectrum of what the people within the culture are doing. What is being said is that whatever the value system is of the society in which you live, in other words, what the will of the majority is, makes it right or makes it wrong. So in our discussions here, what I want to do is to make the statement in one form or another, and obviously the statement could be made many different ways, look at the standard that is being espoused. And then ask, okay, what, what does the Bible say about this as compared to the other religious choices or the other atheistic choices that are available? In this particular case, the Bible is rather strong in saying this is not a valid standard. In Matthew 7, beginning with verse 13, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many to be that go thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads unto eternal life, and few there be that find it. The Bible says this is not a valid standard. No matter what man-made philosophies might say, no matter what the political system might say, this is not a valid way to make moral decisions. But then, on a common base level, what I want to ask you to do is to just think. I'm not trying to force something down your throat here. I'm not trying to suggest to you 
that there is some emotional reason why we should respond to these kinds of standards. What I want you to do is to think about the validity of the standard. And this one's, this one's very easy. I mean, I don't think any of us in our rational moments would suggest that just because everybody's doing it makes something right. Can you think of a politician that has been elected in the last 10 years that you didn't think should have been elected? Well, I don't think there's anybody that would take a, a, a view on that way. It would be different than anybody else. We all have not agreed with the winner of some political elections. We know that the will of the majority is not always right. And in many countries where the will of the majority has been carried, there has been catastrophe, there has been disaster for the culture that was involved. So this is the comparison we want to make. And this one is, I think, pretty easy. Let's go to one that's not quite so easy. There are many ways of stating this one. How did it turn out? The end justifies the means. What is being said here is that results determines what the moral standard is. Many atheists would subscribe to this particular position. The idea would be that if something is functional, if it's workable, then it is useful, morally correct. And this has been put into many terms of evolution. Sociobiologists have said that what you do in life is to promote your genes within the population. That there's one result that is the focus of making things right or making things wrong, and that is whether it perpetuates your genes within the culture or within the population that you're dealing with. There are many versions of this. In olden days, the end justifies the means, indicated that it was, in fact, the final result that determined whether something was right or whether something was wrong. And it's interesting that this also has been a part of modern discussions about birth control, things that have to do with sexual behavior. Planned Parenthood has focused on results. And many religions have based their validity on the basis of how many adherents they can attract. The Bible is quite clear on this. The result is not a valid standard. Jesus said very clearly that the result of a religious act was not the only thing that made it valid. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, for you compass land and sea to make one proselyte. And when he is made, you make him twofold more a child of hell than yourselves. Jesus is concerned with more than results. Jesus is concerned and his moral system says to us, that you can't just look at the end product of a decision morally. And even in religious activities, just getting numbers is not the most important thing. So it's important to understand here that there's a very strong statement made against result as a standard. And there are examples of this. In the Old Testament, and this is purely a religious discussion, but in the Old Testament there were two old boys that got bored with the worship service. <laughs> Did you ever get bored with the worship service? And I don't know whether it was two prayers and a song and a prayer or what, but, it, but these two old boys, Nadia and Abihu, they decided they were going to dress things up a little bit. And it's interesting because they didn't 
leave anything out they were told to do. They did everything they were supposed to do. They just dressed it up a little bit. Bible says that they offered strange fire before the Lord. Now, strange fire could be almost anything, but with my scientific background, I have some thoughts about that. Maybe they found some lithium chloride out there, and they tossed it into the fire that morning. Lithium chloride blazes up a beautiful crimson red color. That would have been attractive. That would have been strange fire. Or maybe they found some copper sulfate out there. When you throw copper sulfate in the fire, it blazes up with beautiful blue-green. Some of you may have used those things that you throw in your fireplace to make the fireplace logs have different colors. We, we don't know what they did. The Bible just says they offered strange fire. And the judgment was harsh. They were consumed or by the fire from the Lord. And the message of the story, and that's the important thing for us here right now, is that God is concerned with more than results. You know, I could come to your community and I could, in six months, given enough money, I could build a church that would be the most popular church in your community. I believe that. It's been done by people far more capable than I am. And to do that, there's only two things I would have to do. Number one, don't take a moral stand for anything. Don't offend anybody. Number two, put on a really good show. Have the best entertainment in town. Outdo Disney. And there are many churches that follow that plan, have followed that standard. The thing I would like to ask you is, how much help is a, a faith like that when you're facing a problem that's bigger than you are? How much help is a faith like that when you're facing death or struggles in life that are beyond the normal ability of humans to solve? You know, it's also interesting that this standard is tied into another standard. And you really can't separate the two. Billy Joel, many years ago, had a song that I really liked. I liked the music. I didn't like the message very much. I think the title of it was called The American Way, and the punchline was, it's my life. Don't you try to tell me how to live my life. You live your life. You leave me alone. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, I used that one a lot when I was a kid. Didn't you? Maybe just in your mind. What are we saying in those kinds of statements? Well, I think it's obvious. We're, we're saying that my standard is me. I'm going to look after number one. That what happens to me is the only thing that is of value. We're saying survival of the fittest. The moral standard is I am the standard. And the other part of that on a moral level has to be I don't make mistakes. And Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 10 and verse 23, it is not within man to direct his own steps. Let's put these two standards together for a moment. Let's look at the question of results and using ourselves as a standard and ask, logically, where does this take us? I'm a high school teacher. I'm going to use examples from the classroom that I think will be helpful, I hope will be helpful. 
that will put this on a practical level that you can see based upon 41 years of working in an inner city high school. The question of promiscuous sex, the question of unwanted pregnancies, the question of sexually transmitted diseases has been a major issue for teachers, for kids, for parents. Organizations like Planned Parenthood have come into the schools and the statements that have been made generally espouse the standards we've been talking about here. The question of engaging in sexual activity has focused on don't get pregnant and don't contract an STD. It doesn't matter what you do as long as nobody gets hurt. It's your life. Make decisions that do not cause you to conceive a child, do not cause you to contract AIDS or herpes or gonorrhea or the human papillomavirus or whatever. Results is the key. Now, the first point that can be made about this on just a logical level, and again, I'm asking you to think about the evidence. The first question that has to be asked is, can we always know the results of an activity like this? The very nature of the pathogens involved in STDs testifies to the fact that we don't always know the results. There have been strains of the HIV virus which appear to be able to be dehydrated and rehydrated. What that means is that the virus could be dried out and then when water was added could be reactivated. Any virus can mutate. Any virus can take different forms. For someone to suggest that we can always know the result of sexual activity is incredibly naive. That's not a valid standard. It's not a good thing to say to kids. But even more importantly is the sex doesn't involve just your body. Sex involves the whole you. It involves your emotional makeup, your psychological makeup, your spiritual makeup. We're not just talking about physical parameters. We're talking about the whole you. For someone to say to you that you can look at a deep, intimate, personal relationship and know ahead of time what the result of that relationship is going to be is about as naive as anything I can imagine. And unfortunately, our society has turned sex into a result-based phenomena. We're concerned about ejaculations. We're concerned about orgasms. We're not concerned about relationships. We're not concerned about the biblical concept of what it really means to be one with another person. And we have lost the beauty that God intended for sexual relationships. The result is no standard. Concepts that are based upon look after number one, that I can be the standard, logically and rationally, don't work. Let's look at another one. And this is one that uh, has been a major mainstay of our society. It's been one of those generation gaps things. And the idea is that times are changing. Years ago, I was on an airplane flight from Chicago to Brookings, South Dakota. Now, if I'd been going to San Francisco, I might have expected a big, heavy moral crisis from someone on the plane. But 
Brookings, South Dakota is pretty conservative, and I didn't really expect to have any problems. But as I sat down in my seat on the airplane, I noticed the young lady next to me that was going to be my seatmate in this flight had a copy of Playgirl magazine. Now, if you don't recognize that, that's the female equivalent of Playboy magazine, complete with nude male fold-out. And it turned out that she was one of the associate editors of Playgirl magazine. We didn't get off the runway in Chicago before we had an argument going, which later embroiled the entire airplane, including the co-pilot. And her opening shot to me was, come on, Clayton, get with it, man, times are changing. She said, we live in a new age. She said, we live in an age when there's no longer the problems of illegitimate pregnancy. We have birth control. We have ways of preventing pregnancy. We live in an age when there's no longer any excuse for sexually transmitted diseases. We have ways of preventing them and treating sexually transmitted diseases. She said, you can't talk about an absolute moral standard because man changes and technology changes and the culture in which we live has changed. The way you make decisions is on the basis of the people you associate with. In other words, your peers. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that the Bible anticipates this. Back in my hippie days, I was a disciple of Ayn Rand. I was very much in support of books like Atlas Shrugged and The Virtuous Selfishness and so forth. And we always talked about that we lived in a time when we were offering a new gospel to a new age. And when I became a Christian, I, I ran across this passage in Galatians 1, which has turned out to be true in my life and in the lives of many of my fellow old hippies. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than we have preached. Let him be accursed. Or more exactly, there will be a curse. And many of us have seen that prophecy played out in spades. In Timothy, there's a statement that says the time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine. They will endure logical teaching. Why? But after their own lust, they will heap to themselves professors, teachers, having itching ears that shall turn their ears away from the truth and be turned unto fables. Well, I suggest to you we've had O'Leary, we've had Hefner, we've had any number of professors, we've had any number of teachers who have said to us, the old standards are no longer valid. We live in a new age. And the results have been catastrophic. We do not live in a new age. The problems that were present at the time of Christ have always been present. How old do you think marijuana is? You know, the Chinese were making rope out of marijuana 8,000 years ago, and I very seriously doubt it took very long for somebody to smoke a rope. That's not new. Not too long ago, they uncovered a, a Phoenician ship that had gone down around the time of Christ. In the hold of the ship, there was a basket of marijuana joints. Jesus dealt with potheads. That's not new. How about alcohol? Is that new? 
Most of you will recall that when the apostles spoke in languages in which they had not been educated in the book of Acts, the accusation made against them was that they were drunk. Alcohol is not new. You may remember that Peter gave a scientific rebuttal of that. He said, hey, you guys, that stuff is not that potent. You can't get loaded by noon. The idea being that alcohol was being used as a recreational drug at that time. How about the hard stuff? Is that new? <laughs> One of my favorite teaching stories, I taught for 41 years in an inner city high school in the center of South Bend, Indiana. And uh, the office in that building was in the middle of the building, and my room was way up on the corner on the third floor. So I was always running down to the office during the passing periods to get something. And one day I was coming down between second and third hour to get something from the office. And as I came around the corner, there was a kid that did what we in the teaching profession call the quickie locker slam. <laughs> this is when a kid sees you coming, slams the locker as quickly as possible so that you can't see what's in the locker. And I always used to slow down because every once in a while the door would bounce open and you could get your foot in and see what the big secret is. And usually it was a dirty picture or something. Well, this time the door didn't bounce open, but as I looked at the locker, there was a curl of smoke coming out the top. So I caught the kid by the arm and I said, I think you better open your locker. It's on fire. And the kid's going, Ugh. he doesn't want to open the locker. About that time, one of the art teachers came by. And so there's two teachers now, one kid. He says, what's the problem? I said, well, we got a locker here with smoke coming out of it. I guess we either pull the fire alarm or this kid opens the locker. Well, at this point, the kid realizes the jig is up, and so he opens the locker. <laughs> there's an upside-down milk crate. Sitting on the milk crate, there's this double boiler type of thing, the porcelain bottom of it, and there's a, a mouthpiece coming off, the, the pipe coming off the bottom with a mouthpiece on it. And I, I knew I had seen one somewhere before, but I... I what is it? And the art teacher's going nuts. <laughs> I said, what is it? He says, it's an opium water pipe. This kid was selling drags on this opium water pipe between the second and third passing period, which explained a lot about my third hour class. <laughs> but how old is opium? Not too long ago, National Geographic ran a spread about the use of opium, and it's still a major problem because it's such a profitable crop in many places in the Middle East. And in the article, it talks about the fact that opium was used extensively as a recreational drug 6,000 years ago. The stuff is not new. And my point in this discussion is to say to you, look, you can't talk about times are changing. Because alcohol is not new, drugs not new. How about sex? Is that new? <laughs> was Jesus tempted sexually? You know, I run into people who think, well, that one just sailed over Jesus' head. Didn't have to deal with that one. Listen, the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way, as are we, yet without sin. And if Jesus wasn't tempted sexually, then that's a bald-faced white lie. None of us are going to stand before God in the day of judgment and say, Lord, you don't know how it was. Because Jesus <clears throat> dealt with it all. Yet without sin. Now there's some other standards that we need to talk about. And in our next program, we want to talk again about the question, okay, if these aren't valid, what is valid? 
Do we just automatically accept the Bible because we can see the weaknesses and the troubles in these standards? And what is the source of this moral information? Mankind has advanced philosophies, has advanced religions, has advanced every conceivable directive on how we should live our lives. And they all remain unsuccessful, phenomenally unsuccessful. You would think by this time in the evolution of human culture that we would have a workable moral system that would free us from the consequences of moral corruption and of bad moral choices. But that simply has not been the case. In our next discussion, let's take a look at what the real answer is. Okay, a little bit different topic uh, today. Uh, he has been talking for quite a while about the um, scientific side of, uh, to answer the question, does God exist? And um, uh, he has looked at a variety of different things that we can uh, look at and show the error of um, now he's going into a, a an, an area or a zone uh, of morality. You know, how do we decide what is right and what is wrong in the way that we govern ourselves and in the way that we govern um, society? Um, the Bible is a um, is a number of things, but one of the things it is, and he is showing. The Bible's view compared to man's view about how to make moral choices. Uh, the Bible is a, a moral code. Um, it is a code of uh, statements, assertions, commands, laws for people to get along with one another. The we often talk about the uh, the old law and the Ten Commandments and the and the law at, at Sinai, and um, there are a lot of of thou shalt nots as far as and thou shalt as far as worshiping God and being obedient to God, but many of those laws and I don't have numbers at hand. Many of those laws um, and commands deal with my neighbor how to get along with my neighbor. What happens when uh, we have a disagreement or when one offends the other or uh, someone injures someone else's oxen or something like that. Um, so this is a, a code of laws, not only how to please God, but how to get along uh, with your fellow man. Interestingly enough, half of the Ten Commandments are directed at God and half are directed at people. Ab absolutely. And remember, um, when the, um, I think it was the young lawyer asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Hoping to pin him down and, and have him pit one command against another so that they could charge him with something. He said, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Um, and he said, and the second is love your neighbor as yourself. So, and he says, 
in those two laws are wrapped up all the laws, all the old law, and all the teachings of the prophets. Everything that relates to mankind deals with how he relates to his God and how he relates to others uh, around him. So when we start looking at the Bible um, as a as something to follow in our lives, yes, <laughs> in it are the words of life. In it is uh, absolute truth. In it is God's inspired word. But even if it didn't have those more important pieces in it, it would be a good code of conduct for people to follow. And so when we see passages like uh, he shows us here, those are just good, sound, solid uh, principles to follow. One of the things in, in um, organizational leadership nowadays, uh, people are saying that organizations, companies, uh, corporations need to have a, a core set of principles. You need to have some core principles. And what those essentially are, are, are um, things that are not uh, changeable, things that are not tradable for something else, things that characterize us at our very core, who we are as, as individuals, as corporations, what we sincerely believe in either about the product, about our customer, about society in general, or whatever it is. All of us should have some core principles. If you've never thought about that, you might take a few minutes after we get done today and say, okay, you know, if I had to list five characteristics that I think I, or I hope I embody, and that those things are not transmutable, transferable, uh, unalterable, um, unsacrificeable. What would those five things be? And to narrow it down to an arbitrary number of five might might be um, difficult in and of itself. But to think, who am I? If someone asks you that in an interview, and I've I've done that. I ran across that as a question interview question, and we were interviewing a, um, a department head. Um, a few years before, about a year or so before I retired from at Western Kentucky University, and I ran across that as a as an interview question. I thought, well, that's interesting. I you know all these years I've taught personnel administration, I've taught interviewing, and I've never really considered that one as a question because it's just too broad, too vague. But what it does is it requires the person to narrow down and focus and say, okay. And I, I set up the question this way. I said, think before you answer. But I'm going to ask you a, a very straightforward question that you can take in whatever direction you like. Here's the question. Who are you? And it was interesting because this was higher education. Higher education is no friend to um, churches, no friend to religions, uh, or religion, a concept of religion, no uh, friend to anything, and I've got some stories that I could share in that regard, um, anything biblical or godly. And this woman 
looked up, she looked down, and then she looked and stared right at me, and she said, first and foremost, I'm a child of God. And I thought, she knows higher ed. <laughs> she knows how that statement might be taken by at least some in the room. And yet, her boldness with that assertion that first and foremost, I am a child of God, I thought, wow, this person is convicted. And to, it said to me that no matter what situation I find myself in, I hope and I pray that I am that convicted so that my first response toward anything is how am I going to respond to this as a child of God? That is a core principle. And you know what? I don't even remember what else she said after that <laughs> in the interview. I don't know I don't know what else she said about who she was. Uh she might have said, you know, I'm a mother, I'm a, a school superintendent or whatever whatever she was. Um but but that, that assertion as to as a core truth about her was she believed that she was a child of God and that was going to guide everything else that that she felt um, about in her relationships uh, with others and how she worked and how she played and how she did other things. So the Bible is more than just you know a path to get to heaven. It is that and it is that in spades. But even if it didn't have <clears throat> that part in there, it would be a good book otherwise. Of course, we say it's not a good book if it lies about what it, what it says it is, so we have to take all of that uh, together uh, in one. He makes the uh, comparison between uh, that some people say, well, you know, if that's... I've seen what kind of people are in the church, and if uh, that's the kind of people that are in the church, I don't want to be in it. Um, well, he he makes he makes a point there about it's the principles that we should be focused on. What are the teachings, rather than how the individuals within the group carry them out? Yes, <laughs> I was. Uh, we had a a preacher uh, one time. I think he came for a. Um, we were looking for a preacher and he came up for a, a trial sermon and he brought this up and he said people say all the time I don't wouldn't want to be in a, in a church uh, like that there are too many hypocrites there and he said well where else would the hypocrites be <laughs> they they wouldn't be hypocrites if they weren't you know in and that wasn't to justify that it's okay to have hypocrites in there but you're going to have people of all kinds in every circumstance in every situation some live the principles a lot more closely than others we hope that within every uh, group of, of God's people that they are striving to do their best to not only worship as they are supposed to worship God when they come together but also that they they live out their lives according to the principles and and the uh, teachings uh, that are that are held, uh, or that are contained within the Bible. But we're human, 
and we have flaws and we make mistakes. Um, it is important for us to know that we aren't just a child of God on Sunday morning or Sunday night or Wednesday evening. We are a child of God out in the community as well. And how we conduct ourselves in our business dealings, in our relationships with our neighbors, in our relationships with those who drive next to us on the highway and cut us off, all of those should reflect that we are children of God and that we have an automatically forgiving nature about us rather than a selfish, me-focused type of living our lives. And that's not easy to do. Um, but it's possible to move. Uh, we have the song, um, All of Self and, mm -hmm. and None of Thee. Um, none of Self and All of Thee. I don't remember what the title is. But the four verses talk about um, how I was... In, in the first verse, <laughs> how I was with all of self and, and none of thee, some of self and some of thee in the second verse, um, less of self and more of thee in the third verse. And then the last verse completes the transition that that person has made or she has made in, in, in their lives where it is none of self and all of thee. And that is the attitude that Christ demonstrated on the cross. Um, in his life on this earth, in his ministry. And it is that example that we are to emulate and attempt to carry out in our own lives um, through those two great commandments, loving God with all your heart and loving our fellow man uh, just as much as we love ourselves. Anything in there you want to comment on? Yeah, uh, if you're coming to church expecting to find a bunch of perfect people, <laughs> uh, you're not going to find it here. Uh, you'll find a whole lot of people that love Jesus and are willing to submit to him in every aspect of our lives, at least in an attempt to do so. Uh, like, like Rick's been saying, um, perfect people are a misnomer. If there was a perfect church and you came into it, it wouldn't be perfect anymore. You know? That's right. So, uh, it's kind of the funny thing. People want a perfect church, but we're all on a journey, like the song says, you know, and we're trying every day to be more and more like him. But uh, we fail and we mess it up. But uh, doesn't mean that we're that the standard's not still there. He uh, he points out um, Nadab and Abihu, and uh, if you saw in the reading, he didn't mention it there. But these two priests, Nahab, Nadab, and Abihu, were the sons of Aaron. Now Aaron was, I guess, just as handpicked as Moses was to lead the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage. In fact, Aaron was to be Moses' mouthpiece. Moses, as you know, tried to get out of leading uh, the Israelites in a number of ways, and God demonstrated in every way that not only would he be there, but also Aaron would be there with his, with his staff um, and with his uh, ability to maybe communicate more effectively. We don't see that, I don't think. Uh, there was no need for that, but it was a reassuring piece. Aaron um, and Miriam... Uh, their sister, um, were probably key role players as they went through um, their their uh, wilderness wanderings. 
Moses was doing most of the all the communicating with God and then translating that uh, to the people, transferring that to the people. Even to the point where one time Aaron and Miriam uh, said, well, what about us? Why don't we get to do any of the good things like you do? And uh, God answers them rather dramatically and, and afflicts Miriam. I think it was, maybe they were both asking, but Miriam gets leprosy like that. And then they realize that they shouldn't have questioned God and uh, repent, and then the leprosy goes away. But Aaron was the first high priest under the law of Moses. And he was um, that individual from whom all other high priests had to descend, right? Yeah. From a lineage standpoint. Had to be one of his sons or grandsons or great-grandsons. Right on down the line. So Aaron was an important person. Uh, his two sons... He had, I think, th uh, two or three, four other other than these two. He's got at least four. At least four. But he had these two, and they were carrying out an important part of the worship um, service there at that time. For some reason, they felt the necessity to go beyond what God had specified. And he had told them, do it this way. Gave that to Moses, and Moses came back and said, this is what God says to do. Do it that way. So God was instituting a new way of dealing with his people. He had just given them uh, a law. They had become a nation. They were on their way to the land that would complete the threefold promise made to Abraham uh, years ago. And now he has set up how they are going to worship him. And right off the bat, this is like within... The next day or two, it is a very short period of time. It is the next chapter in the Bible. They offer strange fire. Whatever it was that God had told them to do, they felt like they needed to do it a little bit differently, better, maybe not as good, and just they just got tired and lazy right off the bat and thought, well, this will be good enough. God demonstrated that when he says, something is to be done this way it's not up to man to make alterations now, all of those examples that he gave up here of how man wants to justify what he does everybody else is doing it how it turns out uh, it's my life um, the times are changing and he'll look at a couple of others next time as well those are alterations those are aberrations those are transgressions because they are going beyond the law. A transgression means going beyond, missing the mark. Um, and so when we don't follow God's commands, we don't follow the pattern that he has given us for how we are to worship him and how we are to conduct our lives, I don't think he's going to have a fire come out and consume us on the spot. He does not deal with us that way, but we will be held accountable for that. And it could cost us our souls uh, in the day of judgment. And I always like to point out when I'm talking about uh, Nadab and Abihu, oh, there's one other point. Not only did God consume them with fire, 
but they, I think they carried them out and they were not even allowed to give them a formal burial. Aaron and his family was not even allowed to mourn for them. That's rather extreme. God was making a point. I entrust you with my word and my will. Don't try to change it. And, he, and that's about as dramatic a, uh, an illustration of that he means what he says as you can get. Interestingly enough, in the New Testament, we have Jesus who comes, Messiah is there, his people reject him. He has a great number of followers. Um, the leaders of the Jews uh, put him to death uh, on the cross. He rises from the dead and meets with his apostles and says, Okay, it's your turn. I'm returning to heaven. You will be endowed with the, with the Spirit to guide you into all truth. And that happens the, the next day or so, within the next few days for sure, on the day of Pentecost. And they preach the gospel. They preach to these people who have hung around since the time that Jesus was slain on the cross, sacrificed on the cross, which was during Passover. And now he is telling them, you killed the Messiah, God's only son. They sent from heaven to save you from your sins. They responded. They were baptized. The church was initiated. On that day, the church, the kingdom on earth, the kingdom that Jesus came to die for was begun. Within three chapters, probably a very short time, sometimes we don't know how long, uh, how many days transpire, we have um, the process of people selling land that they have in and around Jerusalem to give to the needs of the people who were in the area. I don't know if those were people still there from Pentecost or whether there was just a lot of poor people going uh, within the body and now they were taking care and sharing one another's burdens. People were bringing, um, were selling land, houses, I don't know what all they might have been selling to come and laying the money that they, they, they received from these sales at the feet of the apostles and then the apostles would distribute it make sure that it got to people where there was need. Ananias and Sapphira have um, a modification of that. They sell a plot of land which is admirable, which is nice. They didn't have to. Others were. I'm sure there was some social pressure there. Maybe they were rightly motivated from that standpoint to do indeed give to the poor. Everyone else was laying the entire amount at the feet of the apostles. Ananias and Sapphira did not. And it was they were called on it by Peter, mm -hmm. I believe. And Peter says, you have lied not only to us, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. You have corrupted this very noble process that we're going through. And guess what? God strikes them dead. First Ananias, then Sapphira, later when she comes in. And I just find it an interesting parallel. 
between when the old law was established, when God was establishing his people as a nation with a law and and with a uh, a land um, he does the same thing when he establishes a new law and a new family of God in the New Testament and in both cases he through weaknesses of individuals who are involved, points out to them how serious this business is. It cost people their lives. It got others' attention. And it didn't discourage other people by saying, oh, whoa, this, I don't want to die. I'm not going to engage in something like this. The church grew in phenomenal ways, and it's only it hints at it uh, every now and then. A passage will pop up over the over the course of the probably the first eight eight chapters or so of of Acts that the church was growing in phenomenal ways, and we know um, history tells us more so than the Bible. But the apostles spread out, started in Jerusalem, spread to Judea, to Samaria and to all parts of the earth. That was Jesus' command to them in the first chapter of Acts when he meets with them um, after his, erection, his resurrection before he uh, ascends to heaven. And they completed that. So the church grew and people were very serious in their attempts to follow what God wanted them to do. Now, did they do it perfectly? Did, it, did, they, did, did, did they ever mess up? Well, of course they messed up. Peter himself messed up and had to be confronted by Paul um, about something that he was doing. I wanted to mention uh, one other thing, and we're about about out of time here. Um, this statement about the times are changing. He may go back and and excuse me, I went into my Bob Dylan uh, mode there. The times are changing. They're not a changing. They're they're changing, and so um, he talked about. Um, Casual sex. And in talking with some of the young people today, I, we hear of the term hooking up. Um, and it, there's a casualness about it that many of us from another generation, um, not that that didn't happen, but that it wasn't so casual. It wasn't so taking, taken for granted. There is another phrase that is it just blows my mind, and I hear it from uh, college students that that Mackenzie um, and the boys and and we have engaged with um, called friends with benefits. Guess what benefits? They're friends. There's no romantic interest there. There's no plan for any kind of romantic development there. It's just sex. And um, as Clayton says, to take something that was designed by God to be so special, so unique, so 
reserved for that one special person in your life and to treat it with that cavalier um, of an approach um, points to something that, that I have noticed um, in, in other ways um, that I call the coarsening of society. We used to have uh, censors on TV and there used to be a seven minute, seven second gap of some sort where censors were able to sit there and listen with their finger on a button and when someone said something live they could push a button and it would bleep that out before it went out to uh, the world. Censors developed a rating scale for movies that wasn't necessary until it was necessary to have movies rated for children, for mature, for restricted ages, and uh, for X um, pornography, uh, essentially. So there were times when we had controls on those things, and those controls are disappearing in talk shows, in movies, in regular TV shows. You hear words and concepts and, and activities talked about that you would have never heard in a previous era. So yes, times are changing. God's word does not. God is the same today as he was yesterday, the day before, and forever. Jesus is the same, and God is the same. God's word is enduring, it's everlasting, and is immutable. It does not change. It does not adapt to the times or to anyone's particular interpretation of it. It is truth, and we have to adopt it, and we have to live by it because there will be eternal consequences if we do not. Do you want to say anything before we close? That's good. You don't... Uh it doesn't adapt to you. You adapt to it. I am a child of God. Who are you? I am a child of God, first and foremost. And I have taken that statement and tried to live by it. Not always successful. But it's a worthy, worthy credo. And I would encourage it for everyone. We'll see you next week. See you guys. Thank you. <laughs>